Conversations like this are tailored for podcast listeners like you. Learn how you can support them at radioopensource.org. And thanks for being in on it. We're sitting at home with none other than Colm Tobin, the Irish novelist of Brooklyn and other things, the master student of the master, Henry James. Colm Tobin, welcome to Boston and congratulations on Brooklyn the movie. Can we talk about the swerve at the end or not in the movie? Sure. What does it mean? It uh, means, I think, that you make a different pact with the audience if you're making a film than you do if you're a novelist writing a novel. If you're a novelist, you're constantly engaging the reader's imagination by not describing things, by not having full descriptions of how many windows a house had or how many buttons were on somebody's blouse, that all that is understood, that you're constantly giving signs to the reader, and the reader then is working with those signs to make the reader's own version of a book. It's quite odd when you see the town of Enniscorthy, where I'm from, which is where the Irish parts of the novel Brooklyn are set, I can give an impression or a sense of what the houses look like. Every reader will see them differently. Or indeed, readers won't necessarily see them at all, but just know that they're there in the book for their own purposes. But in the film, of course, they're captured, they're lit. The audience is all together in seeing them. And so you have a different sort of pact going on with the audience, which is, I'm going to show you things. And I'm going to show you things with the illusion that this is the way they are. I'm meaning I'm going to light them and film them with some idea that this is what they look like. And so you tend to need to be much more explicit, to spell things out, to dramatise things further in a film in ways in a novel you really cannot get away with. So that at the end of a novel, the reader will get much more if you end just before the end. And if the aftermath somehow comes at the moment when you put the book down and you think, I think I know what happened next. But I'm not being told I'm being allowed to imagine. I'm being given enough information to imagine. I mean, it depends on the novel. With the novels I write, I find when I come to the end, there's one more thing I'm not going to do now. I'm just going to leave it here and let it rest here. Whereas in a film, you really can't do that with an audience. The audience will really be deeply dissatisfied in that the pact you've made with them, you've broken. Well, immediately it reminds me, I hadn't thought of this, but Isabel Archer going back to Rome at the end of Portrait of I mean, of it's Lady. precisely taken from it. I mean, I mean, wow. it isn't as though it's connected to it. I was using the idea of a woman going back to her husband, as it were. People find the end of Portrait of a Lady very dissatisfying because they want to know well, what happened when she went back. We know he's a monster and she does too, but well, yes, but she might live slightly, with her consequences. Yeah, but even by her leaving in the way she did and what she's been through with Ralph Touchett, something has changed in her and it's not absolutely clear that she's going back to the same conditions with Gilbert Osmond. Mm. But the reader has to imagine that. I mean, with Brooklyn, I was thinking about um, Washington Square. I was thinking about that idea of a young woman who is not fully self-conscious, who's not someone who takes over a room when she enters, someone who's happier in the shadows. But then when I came towards the end, it was the end of Portrait of a Lady that I was thinking about. So interesting. People who've read Nora Webster and Brooklyn, I have to wonder, and I do, whether the epic of Enniscorthy is still to be completed. These studies, especially of women 
in this interesting Irish town on the southeast, not coast exactly, but where you come from. I didn't expect Brooklyn to come. I was writing Nora Webster. I started Nora Webster in the spring of 2000. I finished it in 2013. Mm. So I was working on it all those years. Obviously, I was doing other things as well. But one day when I went to read the opening chapter, I found the story of Brooklyn in the first few pages, just in a few sentences. Hmm. And I saw it and thought, you know, that could work as a story. I wasn't sure what shape the story would be or how long it would be. But I just stopped the novel and took out the story and worked on that. But the problem is you never know what's coming. You think you know. I could think I could tell you what I'm doing over the next year or two, but you just don't know. I was talking to you earlier about John McGarren, who was a wonderful Irish writer who was a friend of mine, and he used to say that he hoped he didn't have another idea until after Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) And I know what he means. What are the qualities of these very interesting but subdued Irish women in your Enniscorti that readers in far places want to absorb in such detail? Well, it's a question of working in detail and not trying to put in too much colour where colour really won't work. This is provincial Ireland. This is a place where there are long winters, but not long freezing winters, just things are pretty cold. Even the summer, there's drizzle as much as there's rain. So you're constantly trying to find a style just to bring things down to a size and maybe bring the music or the melody down to a minor key, as though you're making drawings more than paintings, as though you're making chamber music rather than symphonic music. And with that, you're attempting a sort of insistent rhythm which might make its way into the reader's nervous system or into the reader's system in some way or other and begin to matter to a reader in ways that mightn't be apparent in the first few pages. This connects digression here with one of many self-revelations in your book about Elizabeth Bishop. She in Nova Scotia, you in the southeast quadrant of Ireland, you say both of you grew up in a culture that used language as a device to constrain or restrain experience. You have a line about yourself in that book. I have a close relationship with silence, with things withheld, things known and not said. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is an impression abroad somewhere that Irish people are very garrulous and there's an awful lot of talking (laughs) in Ireland. And this may be the case, but it's often there to mask things that nobody wants to talk about. But there are often people who are completely silent or mainly silent. You often find a man, for example, coming into a house. He'll say nothing at all, maybe for a whole evening. And no one will mind that. And A woman could do all the talking, but she's not going to talk about what matters. Hmm. And so you can get drama out of that. I think the novel form lends itself to that in the sense that you can give the reader a full view of what someone is actually thinking. And then you can show the reader what someone is saying. And the drama then arises from the gap between those two things. So there's a sort of conspiracy with the reader, but the reader knows too. But nothing is being said. So you're working with a sort of muted music arising from pain, arising from things that are difficult, arising from loss. And um, in that world of small holdings, small houses, small hopes, people are good at leaving things out, not saying things. Of course, it reminds you of the famous Seamus Heaney line, this is politics, but the mothers who would say to their Catholic children, whatever you say, say nothing. There's another line 
in the Elizabeth Bishop book, I think you're quoting Joyce about a scrupulous meanness in your prose and maybe in the setting. What does that mean? Joyce was having trouble with his book of stories, Dubliners, and trying to find a publisher for them. And he wrote to a publisher a letter which says that the style of the book is scrupulous meanness. In other words, the early stories are very, very um, dulled. There's a sense that nothing more is said than needs to be said. The dialogue is clipped. The description is sharp, but not filled with flourish or flavour. So he's trying to bring the tone down to a sort of minimalism almost. Mm. And you can see how much someone like Hemingway would have been interested in what he was doing in this style. In other words, instead of over-describing things, instead of letting characters have loads of things to say, instead of putting loads of colour and conflict into a story, you put almost nothing. You let almost nothing happen. So in the story Eveline, Eveline is almost going to go to Buenos Aires, but then she doesn't. So you have, if you have hope, you have disappointment. But it's mild disappointment, and it's rendered in a way that's mild. And so you have a lot of people who are down on their luck, who are sort of chancers, but they're not thieves as much as chancers. They're not drunks as much as just pretty drunk tonight. (laughs) And it's not exactly raining outside, it's just drizzling, it's not freezing, it's just cold. And so all the time you're restraining the tone in order to get some sort of truth, which is twilight. Twilight is the tone you're looking for. What you're going against is a stereotype. And this is one of the things that has really nourished a lot of Irish writing, where there's a stereotype that Irish people are sort of filled with colour and conversation and dancing and singing. Not to mention Blarney. Well, that's what I mean, Blarney. And that you then in your story put none of that in. People say hardly anything. Almost nothing happens. So you're working with that tone almost as a way of avoiding a very rich and ornate style, which people almost expect you to write. And in a way, this idea of language being the only thing you have in a city or a country where there's no parliament, where the democratic systems haven't really inhabited the place fully, where you're in a sort of a grey space politically, and then you try and picture that using a grey style. Everything connects here. You're mentioning Joyce and Dubliners. Portrait of the Artist was published in serial form 100 years ago this year in hardcover 100 years ago next year. I'm thinking a lot about Joyce, especially on the centennial. Joyce, just the great hero of the modernist movement, I think, the one that lasts absolutely. And I keep waiting for a neo-modernist movement, not post-modern or post-post-modern, but that clarity of his rebellion, non servian, I'm out of here. Father, church, empire, bye-bye. I'll be in Trieste making the record of my people kind of thing. And it seems to me there's a palpable hunger in our world for that kind of defiant, fresh start. So I want to get both from Joyce on the centennial to the New Ireland and where in the world your gang is going to lead us. The children, the great-grandchildren of Joyce, but also really the children and grandchildren of your Enniscorty folk. I was in Ireland in the spring of this year, right after the same-sex marriage vote, and one senses a country, a nation, a culture, people ready to make a new statement. What's going on over there, and where would you lead us? 
Well, I think you've got to be careful with all of that. The first thing is that the same-sex marriage referendum was run on the basis of continuity rather than breach. It was a very carefully run campaign. It's a small country. There are two million voters. Half a million will always vote no. Half a million will always vote yes. There's a million in the middle, and they're up for grabs. How do you win a million in the middle? Well, how you do that is that gay people talk about being Irish before being gay, being members of a family as much as being gay. So the word sent out was, look, if you're going door to door, and if you're gay, go with your sister. Let her do the talking. (laughs) Go with your mother even better and let her do the talking. And appear in your town with your family rather than with your boyfriend or with your gay friends. And there was a softening of the image of gay people to make us members of a community, of a family. The great example of this was that Mary McAleese, the former president of Ireland, was able to say, I have twins. One of them is gay. Who is to tell me that that child of mine is to be discriminated against in this country? And if he is to be discriminated against, can you tell me why? And people suddenly said, oh my God, these are twins. You know, of course, then the son, Justin, he would appear in the paper. He was with his family rather than, say, a marginalised group looking for rights. Don't talk about that. So it was a very interesting campaign, but it was to do with continuity rather than rupture. And um, people responded to a sort of way of talking which made Ireland seem a very traditional place in which the tradition of inclusion of people belonging to their families and their communities would matter. So, you know, there are times when something seems new, but in fact it's old. And that's true as well within the tones of writing. And I'm looking at somebody like Eamon McBride, whose novel A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing was one of the books that everyone was reading recently. And she's a much-admired young writer now in Ireland, which is no small thing. In other words, a country that doesn't have Wall Street and doesn't have Hollywood. You know, in other words, the literary form remains Mm -hmm. um, central in the society. But if you look at that style, you see how much of it is taken from that wonderful clipped short sentences you find in Ulysses. That way when Leopold Bloom is wandering around Dublin, the things he notices, he half notices, half says, half remind him of something else. The full stop becomes his way of handling what he notices. And the stream of consciousness, while later on in the book with Molly Bloom, is given an enormous amount of, you know, breath without full stops. Bloom himself has a huge number of them, often just three words, stop, two words, stop, four words, stop. And it was interesting to watch a young writer taking that on board and working with it. I think there's also something that's been in the culture since Dubliners or before, which is a sort of melancholy tone and a sort of poetic tone. By poetic tone, I mean that in a story or a novel, you'll find a scene or even a group of sentences that seem to resonate beyond themselves, seem to have the effect on the reader as music might, much more than information, merely telling you where they went, what they did, what they were thinking, that there's something in the rhythms of the prose that lie underneath what's going on and seem to give much more power to what's going on than the mere informative you know, nature of the actual sentences or the language. You find that with a good number of the younger writers as well, levels of continuity. But also, of course, when you get a country like Ireland, whose image of itself still remains in some way or other urban, but not falling apart urban, 
you know, that still has community, that still has society, that still has family. Well, a young writer like Colin Barrett can really disrupt that by saying, actually, I'm going to find you people who don't feel that anymore, where it's over. People are on the edge of towns. People are living on welfare. People are not going to school where they should. People whose parents are missing. People whose emotional lives are stunted or thwarted. So I'm going to get you what you think is there. And I'm going to give you images of the opposite of it. And there's a great power in doing that. And if you think, for example, Ireland is Catholic or that a lot of young people are against the church, I'm going to just leave the church out. I'm not even going to mention it. It's sort of all over. So it's not even going to get into my story as something I oppose in my story. This is not going to be there. Mm. Say more about Colin Barrett, whose young skins I'm just getting to know. Well, he's another example of a writer who I think has a strange gift, which is oddly poetic on one hand and sharply realist on the other. And he's letting the two things work against each other or with each other. So there are sentences and moments in the stories where you feel some strange emotion arising from an image he has left the camera rolling on, as it were. Just let a sentence rolling more than it needs to so you get a rhythm or a beautiful flow or some... I suppose, emotion from the language and then also other times where the dialogue will be clipped. But his people will be living in an Ireland that the tourist board certainly won't be advertising, where things are run down, houses are not finished, uh, someone is missing in the family, there's no church to even oppose. And um, that's all there to be done now because that sort of Ireland, of course, exists. That is, if you drive to the edge of any town, you say... Why is no one writing a story about this world that I'm looking at now? And the answer is, well, they are. About time, you want to say. Yes, but you see, about time isn't really true because if you look at Dubliners at a time when people might have thought Dublin was a beautiful city or that Irish people were down their knees praying or that everyone was a revolutionary. I mean, this book, Dubliners, was written at the very height of the Celtic revival when everybody was talking about ancient Ireland and playing the harp and singing old songs, and thinking that they were rediscovering their Irishness. These stories are full of that not happening. These people are urban. They're walking the streets. Their desires are not necessarily national desires or cultural desires, but they need more money, or to meet a friend, or a small bit of love, or some sense of community. But it's not as though you can make this into a sort of national moment. This is happening all around. There are images of it in Dubliners. For example, the famous moment in The Dead where Miss Ivers talks about the Irish language being her language and the Aran Islands being the place where she most emphatically belongs much more than in an urban setting. And there's a moment in another story where you see someone's playing the harp on the side of the street and people are watching. But there are scarce moments in these stories, which are stories about scarce emotions, about people who are urban rather than Irish, who are inhabiting a city rather than a nation. And with all that idea that a city has of diversity, of strangeness, of isolation, going against the idea of nation or, or of ancient culture. So that almost every time you have a book by an Irish writer, it's as though there was an image And this image was set up to be the image, the one that matters most, whether it was nationalism or whether it was prosperity or whether it was a sort of post-nationalism. And the job of the writer is to come in and find images to say, I'm putting up a flag over a place 
and in that place all the things you think are just not true. Mm. I interviewed a number of students at the National College of Art and Design and it became a kind of chorus among them about the show bands of Ireland and that kind of tradition which they despise. But the chorus was, get off the stage. Enough of Lawrence Welk and his accordion and the bubble machine. Something new, new voices. And as you're saying, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a school or a, or a brand, but a whole lot of new voices. Yeah, I'm as interested in continuity as I am in rupture. And if you look at, for example, the best young fiddler we have in Ireland, we're not as young as he used to be, is Martin Hayes. And when I saw Martin first, it was a day in Galway, it was lunchtime, and someone told me I was to go to this concert in, in Druid, in Druid Theatre. And I went into the theatre and there were these two old men playing the fiddle together. You couldn't see two better traditional players, fully steeped in Clare fiddle playing that would have gone back, you know, 100 years. They were great. It was beautiful. And a young audience watching them, appreciating what they were doing, learning from them. In the second half, this kid with really long hair came out. He looked like a rock star. They moved over. He got in between them. He was the son of one and a nephew of the other. And then the three of them played. And something lifted them mm. where he was playing in a different way to them. But he had learned from the tradition. It wasn't as though he'd thrown the tradition out. It wasn't as though he was playing sort of wild Jimi Hendrix, you know, sound. He was playing Irish traditional music. He had just found a new way of letting it lift. But he was playing with his father. And even though his hair, I mean, his entire aura was so different from his father and his uncle, nonetheless, there they were, the three of them together on the stage. And I think that's been true. I mean, there's a band called The Gloaming with a singer like Irla O'Linord, who sings in the film of Brooklyn, my novel. And Irla, again, is steeped in a tradition of traditional singing from West Cork. But he will try out new systems, new recording systems or new systems of arranging a song without losing where he came from. And um, figures like Myraid Nigonel, again, will come from a Donegal singing tradition where you sing unaccompanied. But she's worked out ways of being accompanied by someone like Donal Lunny. These people have formed an individual way of working with the tradition without throwing out the tradition. And that's in music. I think something like that has happened also in literature. I take your point entirely, but I hear it in, in terms of American jazz. I mean, when Charlie Parker arrived on the scene, there was this legendary story that Ben Webster goes uptown to hear him out of the Ellington band and comes back saying he's going to change everything. And Johnny Hodges, the premier, the first alto saxophone star, said he's not going to change me. But there was this intimate bond between Parker and Hodges and the tradition in the spirit of innovation. You see it, I mean, you walk through the Louvre and you see it on the walls, endless a sort of cannibalization of the French painting tradition by people who are doing it all new. In the long run, it's the profoundest respect and continuity, if that's what you mean. I do, but I think we have to remember that modernism itself can be represented really by five or six works, by five or six people. You cannot really rewrite or rework the wasteland, for example. It just won't come again, the sort of shock you can produce with it. You can't get that shock twice. That shock becomes an enormous disruption of things. It almost purifies things. It's a way of cleaning out space for something else to occur. But it's very hard to repeat itself. It's very hard to do, to come back to the rite of spring 
and create that shock that Stravinsky could create or create the shock that Ulysses could create. In other words, modernism looks more and more like a set of revolts, which almost led to reform rather than a set of revolutions from which moment nothing was ever the same again. So it just depends on how you read those texts. But attempting to say, you know, we need these in every generation, well, that hasn't been the way, that, that isn't what happened. I mean, if you look at those texts that appeared in that period, 1920, 22, 25, and in painting, indeed, um, with Cubism, the, the aftermath of that became immensely interesting. Because people could work in the space that had been purified or cleared out rather than themselves attempting again to create a noise that had never been heard before. It's three monuments mentioned, two to go. You mentioned Rite of Spring, Ulysses, and... The Wasteland. The Wasteland. I suppose you could talk about Ezra Pound's Cantos, you know, the way in which he attempted to use collage, pastiche, in this hugely untidy monumental work which would contain the entire universe, or at least as much as Pat wanted to put into it. But are we ready for to clear the space again? You know, it's, um, it's almost like asking, are we ready for the Russian Revolution again? <laughs> are we ready for the First World War again? What I see happening is a lot of continuity with areas of small amounts of disruption, but it's the continuity I'm seeing. For example? Well, I mean, I'm just taking those writers I've mentioned, like Eamon McBride in Ireland or Colin Barrett in Ireland, while they're both operating outside the traditional um, confining spaces of realism. By realism, I mean that each sentence merely says what it needs to say in order to give the reader sufficient information to get on with the story. That they, neither of them is very interested in that, mm-hmm. that the style is more poetic than that, meaning that some of the sentences have a resonance which goes beyond the mere business of telling the reader what happened next. Uh, that there's a sound coming from the words, even though you're reading it silently, that begins to hit your nervous system as much as there's informative sentence. And that that um, takes its bearings, I suppose, from a great deal of work that was done in the early years of the 20th century, not only by Irish writers, but indeed by American writers as well. I guess what I'm feeling in a totally amateur way, though, is a kind of exhaustion. Late periods across the board, including a kind of endless war, for we don't know what reason, a world capitalist system that doesn't serve anything like a majority of people, and maybe a hunger for an artistic statement, maybe Ai Weiwei, I keep thinking, to take us in another direction. If I hear world capitalist system, if I hear the words like that and I'm thinking about literature, I reach for my revolver, you know. I I can imagine. I want to go into a shadowy, empty space and see if I can find an image that might be true. And the image won't include any of those words. Of course not. um, But some of the same impulse, You might call that a sort of retreat. And that's what it may be. But um, we have to remember that we're not writing pamphlets. That if you want to write a pamphlet at the moment, especially, it's absolutely easy for you. You can write blogs, you can write all sorts of things about what's going on in the outside world. But I wonder if the private business of what the sentence can still do, that the resonance it can still have, the relationship between the author and the reader in that silent space created on the page that that can still, even if it might look like in in the grand plan of things, like retreat or like something old-fashioned and stable, 
that isn't fully reflecting whatever need we might have for total change in the world, that this, oddly enough, is um, very powerful still and something that um, can really have a great deal of, you know, spiritual influence. Perhaps there's somebody, as we speak, who's being hugely ambitious with the novel form and is going to produce the next Finnegan's Wake. Sometimes when the pressure is on you to do that, what you need to do is just go into a room and try and write down five or six sentences that are not only true, but are, that are rhythmically pure and might actually matter to one person reading them rather than to a generation or to you know, a vast thing out there that might be called you know, hunger for change. That if you just think, I just need to get this right, that's what I need to do. You know, I need to look after my sentences. Let everybody else now look after capitalism. I look after my sentences. That might be a better position to be in as a writer. You've drawn us all into Elizabeth Bishop with your book on her. Would you give us a taste of your own favourites among her poems? You know, I think there are great connections between Nova Scotia and Ireland, not least this sort of sense of poverty in the hinterland, the sea and the rain being really part of the spiritual landscape as much as the actual landscape, and also a sort of scrupulous meanness in tone where people will hesitate to say very much about anything, especially in rural places where people will be very hesitant to make themselves clear and will be watchful as much as garrulous. And then, of course, the whole business of being away from a place that you know that you were brought up in or that you really have come to know. Every summer we went to stay in a place called Ballyconagher. Some years Ballyconagher Upper, some years Ballyconagher Lower. Recently, someone said to me that there was a painting for sale and it was coming up for auction, a small painting, by the Irish painter Tony O'Malley, who had worked in the town of Enniscorthy, where I'm from, in the 19, late 1940s. He must have come down to Ballyconagher Upper on a Sunday and he must have painted this particular scene. There aren't any people, there aren't any houses, but it's just a contour in the landscape. It's a way that if you're looking north and the cliff is above you, that the cliff turns. And when I looked at it, I recognised it immediately. I know exactly where that was. Of course, it brought me back to this famous late poem by Elizabeth Bishop called Poem. And there's something else in the poem that's interesting as well. She uses the word heavens, meaning gracious or, oh my God, heavens, I recognise the place. When I was in Nova Scotia, I noticed everyone was saying heavens all the time. It was a natural part of speech in Nova Scotia. You know, in the morning on the radio, they would say, heavens, it's going to be a beautiful day today. And people would use the word heavens in that sort of way. So I loved the idea that she was using what is a local turn of phrase um, in this poem. But what she's talking about here is the idea of where you're from, of recognising a thing, and that being a crucial part of you. And then she's worried that the language she's using is too high-flown. She uses the word visions. And then she realizes, no, no, the sort of scrupulous meanness in a way of her work is visions is too, it's too strong a word. It's too, too weighted a word. I need a word that's true and plain and real that might not seem obviously poetic, but will be all the more poetic when I place it in a context into a rhythm 
Again, that may not be an obvious poetic rhythm to the reader, but somehow underneath this poetry of statement, there is a music, a muted music, a grey music actually playing all along that actually starts to hit you as the poem moves on from what's an ordinary conversational, almost non-poetic tone into one that leaves you with a shiver at the end, wondering what it was quite that just hit you emotionally, where it was in the poem, where that began and was sustained. So this poem is called Poem. About the size of an old-style dollar bill, American or Canadian, mostly the same whites, grey-greens and steel-greys, this little painting, a sketch for a larger one, has never earned any money in its life. Useless and free, it has spent 70 years as a minor family relic, handed along collaterally to owners who looked at it sometimes or didn't bother to. It must be Nova Scotia. Only there does one see gabled wooden houses painted that awful shade of brown. The other houses, the bits that show are white. Elm trees, low hills, a thin church steeple, that grey-blue wisp, or is it? In the foreground, a water meadow with some tiny cows. Two brush strokes each, but confidently cows. Two minuscule white geese in the blue water, back to back, feeding, and a slanting stick. Up closer, a wild iris, white and yellow, fresh squiggled from the tube. The air is fresh and cold, cold early spring, clear as grey glass. A half inch of blue sky below the steel grey storm clouds. They were the artist's speciality. A speck like bird is flying to the left. Or is it a fly speck looking like a bird? Heavens, I recognise the place. I know it. It's behind... I can always remember the farmer's name. His barn backed on that meadow. There it is. Titanium white. One dab. The hint of steeple. Filaments of brush hair is barely there. Must be the Presbyterian church. Would that be Miss Gillespie's house? Those particular geese and cows are naturally before my time. A sketch done in an hour in one breath. Once taken from a trunk and handed over. Would you like this? I'll probably never have room to hang these things again. Your Uncle George. No, mine. My Uncle George. He'd be your great uncle. Left them all with mother when he went back to England. You know, he was quite famous. An R.A. I never knew him. We both knew this place, apparently. This literal small backwater. Looked at it long enough to memorise it. Our years apart. How strange. And it's still loved, or its memory is. It must have changed a lot. Our visions coincided. Visions is too serious a word. Our looks, two looks. Art copying from life and life itself. Life and the memory of it so compressed. They've turned into each other. Which is which? Life and the memory of it cramped, dim, on a piece of Bristol board, dim, but how live, how touching in detail, the little that we get for free, the little of our earthly trust, not much, about the size of our abidance along with theirs, 
the munching cows, the iris, crisp and shivering, the water still standing from spring freshets, the yet-to-be-dismantled elms, the geese. By God. Uh, Colin Tavine, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. you.